everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. This is an iHeart Original. In 1694, William Chaloner, now the best counterfeiter in London, living in a fine house in suburban Knightsbridge, wearing the clothes of a gentleman, inserted himself into the debate around the coins. This was less than two years before Parliament passed the Recoinage Act, and Chaloner's name appeared on a pamphlet entitled Proposals Humbly Offered for an Act to Prevent Clipping and Counterfeiting Money. Everybody's always so humble. Now England hath been more grieved with clipped and counterfeit money than any other country, for want of proper laws to prevent the same, and by the abuse of the minters of our money, who have made the coin with so little art and ingenuity, that any may clip or counterfeit money without much difficulty. That it may be presumed the old money in this kingdom is now worth two-thirds of the intrinsic value. But if there be not a stop put to clipping of money, it will in a few years be so diminished and counterfeited that it will not be worth half the value it was coined for. Chaloner was, some 40 years later, sounding a lot like Monsieur Blondeau. And of course, he wasn't wrong about the coins because not much had changed since the 1650s, despite the introduction of the machines. Remember, the Treasury never recalled all the old coins. Now, we know that Chaloner was more qualified than most to talk about clipping and counterfeiting. But why would he start offering tips on how to put himself out of business? Was Chaloner going legit, using his ill-gotten knowledge for the betterment of the kingdom? Not quite. This was something bigger than making fake coins, and sneakier. Now the money, being such bad workmanship, every smith, clockmaker, brazier, goldsmith, etc. can grave stamps. And the work being so flat and irregular, they can stamp money with a hammer of three pound weight which is a great grievance to the kingdom, 
to have our money coined so disingenuously that it may be counterfeited with so much ease. This was a good suggestion, so good that the Mint was pretty much already in possession of such a machine. However, Challoner also added, like everyone else, that the Treasury needed to recall all the old coins, melt them down, and remint them. Challoner also made a few other suggestions, some practical and some less so. For example, he proposed that the Mint go on the road, travel from county to county, to allow the rich and the poor alike to trade in their coins without fear of being robbed or missing out. Parliament was not going to go for any of it, really. After all, who was this William Challoner anyway? He's the son of a Warwickshire weaver. But Challoner didn't care whether his suggestions were actually adopted. What Challoner wanted was to be noticed. It was just possible, or just becoming possible, for smart people with things to say to get attention from powerful people through the new medium of the press. Have you read the ideas of this Challoner chap? Yes, I am immensely interested in his proposals. Maybe we should put them to the test. I would be eager to speak to him further on the subject. A movable mint would be too great a charge to the king and treasury. But we must do something about the counterfeits. Indeed, Miss William Challoner speaks sense. And those fools at the Mint haven't the merest idea of how to curb the clippers and coins. We'll sink us all. Challoner had figured out that he could use pamphlets as a way to manufacture himself a reputation as an expert, to make a name for himself not only among the criminal classes. And this, he thought, could get him what he really wanted, an in at the mint, a way to waltz through the front door and get a close-up look at its operations. Challoner summed up his proposal by offering to show Parliament some exemplary pieces of coin, my own design, to demonstrate how money can be coined so that it shall be impossible for any private person to counterfeit it. And he offered to do it at the mint. For iHeartRadio, I'm Linda Rodriguez-McRobbie, and this is Newton's Law, an iHeart original podcast. Episode 3, Mint Condition. The not-so-great recoinage. William Challoner's proposals didn't get him into the mint yet. But his recommendation to recall and recoin, now that was something everyone knew had to be done. And by late 1695, Parliament knew it too. The Great Recoinage, as it was later called, started on January 22, 1696. And it was meant to be wrapped up in a few months. Most of the time, the mints were seasonal, if that. The men who worked at them tended to be farm laborers who were called up for duty when the mint decided it needed new coins. 
This, however, was an all-hands-on-deck situation. In order to meet the demands of the incredibly ambitious, certainly foolish, schedule imposed by Parliament, work at the Mint started at 4 a.m. and didn't stop until midnight, every day except Sunday. But if you're picturing a tidy, assembly line-style operation, don't. Yes, not a modern manufacturing process as we understand it today. So don't think of a um, you know, production line process where you might start at one end of the mint and neatly work your way around. That's Chris Barker, historian at the modern Royal Mint. It's a very hiddledy-piddledy arrangement. So you may well have melting at one end and then you uh, move your uh, casted strip down to another end of the mint. So it's a little bit here, there and everywhere. And this was on machines that were now more than 30 years old in a workshop that had been in use since the 13th century. And all of that manufacturing took place in the tower. So if you can imagine the situation you would would have if you were a visitor, say, walking into the the raw mint in the Tower of London, you'd walk into a very narrow, cramped, confined alleyway, which is flanked on either side by wooden buildings, many of them sort of crazed with age, often falling to pieces. And you've got a counterdine literally propped up with timber and sort of bolted together with big iron bolts that's often fallen apart. So it's a very ramshackle institution um, by this point in history. Nearly 300 workmen, nine presses, and 10 milling machines, as well as the three large furnaces, were crammed into this ramshackle institution, which was not more than 100 feet at its widest. And that's not even counting the horses. Some of the rolling machines, which flattened the sheets of metal to the right thickness to be punched into blanks, relied on horsepower to turn their incredible weight. There could be as many as 12 horses in the workshop at any given moment. Over the roughly two years of the recoinage, the Mint spent nearly 700 pounds, as in actual money, in hauling manure away. That's 135,000 pounds in today's money. That was at the Tower Mint, the main mint in the country. But to facilitate bringing in old coins in places far from London and to up production on making new ones, The Mint had established temporary operations in Bristol, Chester, Exeter, Norwich, and York. But none of it, the long days, the horse manure, the temporary mints, was enough. Things were not going well at all. To begin with, the man in charge of the recoinage was a guy called Thomas Neal. He was known as Golden Neal after his extremely advantageous match to England's richest widow, a woman with an estate valued at 120,000 pounds. Neal was the master of the mint, one of the three officers, along with the warden and the controller, who ran the mint. But he was meant to be the one making this huge undertaking happen. And Neal was, in a word, useless. It's a re-coinage, it's not going well at all. It must be somebody else's fault. Neil was one of those rich guys who just kept failing upwards with the help of his powerful contacts. He was the groom of the bedchamber for Charles II, James II, and William III, a role that basically meant that he helped the king, whichever one it was, get dressed and refereed his card games. He'd been master of the mint since 1686, but he was a terrible administrator who'd done very little to plan for the recoinage. Neil, Neil was not a good master of the mint. I mean, he was not involved in, in, in any, you know, in a day-to-day basis. He's the man who ran up ginormous debts and was not really concerned, generally, from, from the mint point of view. 
So it was his assistant, the deputy master, a French Huguenot called Dr. John Francis Fauquier, who did the businessy stuff, while Neil did other things. Ran the North American Postal Service, or rather had a deputy who actually lived in the colonies do it. Speculated on housing developments. Neil Street. That has a nice ring to it. Tried to invent cheat-proof dice. Raised shipwrecks. Stuff like that. Mr. Farquhar, I leave it to you. Uh, You can sort it, right? Farquhar did his best, but there weren't enough men, and the machines were all old, and there weren't enough of them either. The mints were not producing coin quickly enough to meet demand, and the country was in actual danger of running out of legal, physical money. This problem was compounded by the fact that the mechanism that the government put in place for allowing people to trade in their old coins for new ones was not so good. They say for a given period of time, we will take coins at their face value, regardless of how badly worn or degraded they are. So if you present something that you can see is a shilling, but has lost half its weight and is you know, battered and barely legible, the official will still take it at a shilling's value, even though there's only half a shilling's worth of silver there. But this system was somewhat narrow. Only people who paid direct taxes or made loans to the government were allowed to trade clipped or debased money in for face value. The trade-in also only lasted five months. And that means that those who are in the know, those in the urban areas who can really uh, get onto this, can make a huge profit because you can gather a selection of very battered coins, which only have minimal silver value, tender them in and actually get the full face value for them. The people that suffer are those in the isolated areas, those who are more remote and more rural, who cannot get all this old coinage that they might have available to the exchange in time in order to benefit from this. Because after a certain time, you don't get that full face value. Instead, you're just left with the weight of the coinage. Within six months, people had to sell their old coins at weight, meaning that their coins had suddenly lost as much as half of their value. By this time, there wasn't enough real legal coin in circulation to pay for the expenses of daily life. Here's writer John Evelyn's diary entry from May 13th. Money still continuing exceeding scarce, so that none was paid or received, but all was on trust. The mint not supplying for common necessities. Things were still bad a month later. Want of current money to carry on the smallest concerns, even for daily provisions in the markets. Guineas lowered to 22 shillings and great sums daily transported to Holland where it yields more, with other treasures sent to pay the armies. And so imprudent was the late Parliament to condemn the old, though clipped and corrupted, till they had provided supplies. To this, add the fraud of the bankers and goldsmiths, who, having gotten immense riches by extortion, keep up their treasure in expectation of enhancing its value. The mint? under Neil's very hands-off leadership, was floundering. Nothing considerable coined of the new and now only current stamp caused such a scarcity that tumults are every day feared. That there wasn't enough coin was bad for wealthier people like John Evelyn, but again, it was much worse for the poor. Another contemporary observer wrote in a private letter that the people are discontented to the utmost, adding that 
many self-murders were happening owing to the want. And it was starting to look pretty bleak for the government as well. For one thing, the want that drove people to kill themselves might just as easily drive them to rage and riot. These were and are the conditions that led to revolution. And in fact, at least one town saw people arrested for rioting after a tax collector refused to take the old coins. But what else were they going to pay with? And that's the other thing. When the people can't pay rent or taxes, the government's coffers start to empty. This government was already in trouble, so the sudden lack of revenue made things that much worse. Soldiers in some parts of the country were being paid in provisions because there wasn't enough coin to pay them in real money. Mutinous grumblings added to the tumults, and everyone started squinting at the king and queen suspiciously. If Isaac Newton had wanted an easy gig, he'd become warden of the royal mint at exactly the wrong time. When you have health insurance, it's easy to think, I'm covered, no worries. Well, not so fast. Remember, your out-of-pocket costs are not covered by insurance. That can be a lot of money for your family. But how do you know you're not being overbilled? It's estimated that over 50% of medical bills contain errors. Unless you're a billing expert, how do you know your medical bills are accurate? HealthLock can help. HealthLock is a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your insurance. When your medical claims come in, HealthLock technology reviews the claim for errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. HealthLock makes it easy to find and fix hidden errors, so you pay only what you owe. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. Bottom line, insurance alone isn't enough. To save, visit HealthLock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. That's HealthLock.com. Claim comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV True Crime Podcast, to live and die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent 
telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Act Two. Out with the old, in with the Newton. To put it succinctly, the Mint was a shambles. A mess that was threatening to undermine the economy, the new monarchy, the country's fragile financial institutions, everything. And when he was confronted with this mess, Warden Isaac Newton didn't do what Master Neil had done, and he didn't do what every other warden had done, which was basically nothing. And Newton could have done that, but Newton was not that sort of person. That's Dr. Patricia Farah, Cambridge historian and Newton expert. He went in there very energetically and decided he was going to overhaul the system and make it work properly. And he was a very, very dedicated, systematic, organized manager. Newton rolled up his sleeves and got to work. He was, as one biographer later said, a born administrator. Thomas Fowle, a clerk at the Mint, actually wrote to Newton to tell him that he was the first warden since at least 1672 who didn't treat the post as a sinecure. If I may be so bold to say, we shall find you fair to exceed the rest for the good and privileges of the Mint more than all your predecessors. Fowle also spent the majority of this letter explaining all the ways that the previous wardens had disappointed. Sir Anthony and Ledger, then warden of the Mint, came very seldom to the place and did not anything of service more than to come and ask how the affairs of the Mint were. And that was all, and so went his way. Fowle might have been trying to get on Newton's good side, certainly, but Charles Montague, the Chancellor of the Exchequer who gave Newton the job, later said that the recoinage couldn't have happened without him. Newton was absolutely meticulous in everything that he did. He was a very thorough man. And it seems that all the energy he put into making observations of the stars or recording the dates of ancient events that happened thousands of years ago, he turned all that energy into making sure that the mint was run as efficiently as possible. The microscope had only really just been invented but Newton was putting the mint's operations under it, metaphorically speaking. Newton researched the history of the mint going back 200 years. He went through decades of accounting books, making notes in the margins. He was an obsessive copier. He could have had his assistants copy down all the meeting notes, all his letters and correspondence with the treasury and others, but he did it himself. Haynes, bring the records. I want all the receipts and accounting books and the warrants. This meant that Newton was aware of all the Mint's business, so much so that he knew who was trying to get one over on the Mint. Has the Treasury already paid the carpenters? 
For example, he told the Treasury not to pay the carpenters until the quality of their work was checked. We are humbly of opinion that the work done by the carpenter and the rest of the workmen ought to be surveyed and valued before their whole bills are paid off. Another time, he kept the mint from signing a contract with some metal dealers who had offered to take over the recoinage at a very steep markup. These goldsmiths want how much? Preposterous. From my observations, the mint can do it for at least a third less than these charlatans propose. Golden Neal has made a mess of this. Oh, would that he was spending his wife's money and not the treasuries. Within a month and a half on the job, Newton had shouldered useless Neal out of the way and was basically doing his job too. We are in the business of making money, not spending it needlessly. Newton knew that in order for the mint to meet the demands of the treasury, some things, a lot of things, had to change. If you can keep reason above passion, that and watchfulness will be your best defendants. Newton saw that the machines were producing a maximum of 15,000 pounds of coin a week. The treasury wanted 30 to 40,000 pounds of coin a week. This was a math problem. Newton calculated that he'd need two new smelting furnaces, eight new rolling mills, and five new coining presses. This sort of empirical data collection, this was what Newton was really, really good at. For example, as Thomas Levinson noted in his book, Newton and the Counterfeiter, Newton realized that a new melting pot could hold 800 pounds of silver metal. But within six weeks, that capacity was reduced to just 650 pounds because the pot actually got smaller as the silver coated it. This affected the output and the number of coins that could be produced, so Newton determined that a pot was only good for about 120 meltings. Newton cast his eye around the workshop, looking for more inefficiencies. There is also a waste in the milling by the dripping off of sand with some particles of silver and by some blanks falling out of the pan upon the hearth and shreds of silver lost in the dust or by sticking to the workmen's shoes. Then he turned to the men themselves. One of the things that he did was to institute what we would call time and motion studies. And he watched all the people working and he insisted that they should work far, far faster to make the work more efficient. Newton calculated the rate at which mint workers could churn out coins. Two mills with four millers, 12 horses, two horse keepers, three cutters, two flatters, eight sizers, one kneeler, three blanches, two markers, two presses with 14 labourers to pull at them can coin £3,000 of money per diem. Newton said the men operating the press needed to produce 50 to 55 coins a minute in order to make £3,000 of coin a day. That's almost a coin every second. That's fast. It is physically demanding, and the, the four gentlemen who are pulling on the, on the ropes um, as part of the screw press, the demands are such that they can only operate in shifts of 15 minutes before they're exhausted. So they're doing 15 minutes on, they'll swap out, four more people will come in 15 minutes, and so they're constantly swapping in and out. This does not make Newton popular with his new staff. Unsurprisingly, 
all the staff disliked him because he made them work at a far higher rate and he, he got rid of all the little private practices where people were making money on the side. So he was a very, very efficient manager. He was also a ruthless manager. I don't think Newton was particularly well liked at all, if I'm honest. I mean, there are there are accounts of people who get on with him. Don't get me wrong. He wasn't he was not disliked by everybody. But there was also a lot of people he rubbed up the wrong way. I think he's probably one of those individuals where if he took a disliking to you, that was it. No matter what you did, no matter what you could do, you've had it. Newton's efforts and indifference to the opinions of his staff paid off. Between 1696 and 1700, the value of the silver struck by the mint was more than 5.1 million pounds. That was about 2 million pounds more than had been made in the previous 35 years put together. And more importantly, by September 1696, silver coin was again flowing through the veins of the country's economy. There were no major riots, no revolution, and both the king and queen kept their heads. Newton thought he deserved a raise, or at least as much as Neil was getting for being master. The salary of the warden of His Majesty's Mint is only £400 per annum, with a house where £40 per annum, and his perquisites are only £3, 12 shillings per annum for coal. All which, taxes being deducted, is so small in respect of the salaries and perquisites of the other officers of the Mint as suffices not to support the authority of his office. It seems that Newton got that raise. But there was still another problem facing the Mint. And this one wasn't something Newton could solve through a time and motion study. This was a problem that would, at least for a while, consume the majority of Newton's time as warden, bringing clippers and counterfeiters to justice. And it was a part of Newton's job that he was not happy about at all. Nor is there any reward or encouragement appointed for my service in these matters, nor am I provided with any competent assistance to enable me to grapple with an undertaking so vexatious and dangerous as this. Coming up on Newton's Law, we know by now that this most vexatious counterfeiter, William Challoner, is no run-of-the-mill coiner. So how will his play for the mint itself turn out? The mint is either incompetent or corrupt, or both. Newton's Law is a production of iHeartRadio. It's written and hosted by me, Linda Rodriguez-McRobbie. Our senior producer is Ryan Murdoch. Our producer is Emily Marinoff. Our executive producer is Jason English. Original music by Elise McCoy, with editing help from Mary Dew. Sound design and mixing by Jeremy Thal. Research and fact-checking by me and Jocelyn Sears. Voice acting by Keith Fleming, Mark McDonnell, and Robert Jack. Special thanks to Chris Barker and Dr. Patricia Farah. Special thanks to Mangesh Hatekudur and Finiflex Sound Studios. Our show logo is designed by Lucy Quintanilla. Thanks for listening. Ah, bloody hell. 
acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.